Hello, good evening everyone, and welcome to the TNT show, The Nation Talks. And as always, every week at 7pm on a Wednesday, we guarantee you an exciting show, and this is no exception. But first of all, a little aside about British democracy, if, I may, if you may indulge me. Uh, today, I, ha I had the great privilege of receiving a Conservative Party leaflet encouraging me to say no to a referendum. Uh, I, I wondered what the logic of this was, and no doubt I figured it would be spelled out in the accompanying pages. So I have this to report so that you don't have to read it. I'll tell you what I discovered when I uh, perused the leaflet. Uh, in it, the following were mentioned. Independence was mentioned 16 times. A referendum was mentioned 18 times. Indyref uh, had three times for a, of a mention, and the SNP attracted six Tory policies, zero mentions. Oh, this is, this is in fact, it's a policy-free leaflet. <laughs> this is, in my humble experience, unique in being asked to support zero policies. Anyway, thank you for joining us this evening. As I said, we have another great guest, uh, and I'm absolutely delighted that he's able to join us. Uh, tonight, the TNT show welcomes Jim Fairley. Now, this is going to be very interesting because Jim will be able to talk to us about being a candidate. He's standing as a candidate, SAP candidate for South Persia and Oko in the May 6th election. That in itself is an interesting experience. What's his reaction on the doorsteps? How are people responding to all all of this stuff that goes on in every election campaign. Information comes from all sorts of funny directions uh, and various claims are made and counterclaims. How do people react to all of this stuff that's going on around them? Particularly people who are not terribly heavily and profoundly plugged into politics. Jim will be able to tell us that tonight. And also, and this is really crucially important, uh, bearing in mind the impact that Brexit has had, Jim is an expert on the farming community. So hopefully we'll find some time to talk about that too. Uh, and that should be of major importance to all of us, frankly. So we'll be talking about all of these things and so much more besides. So, Jim, how are you coping with the pandemic? Welcome. <laughs> First of all, John, thank you very much for having me. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm just getting through the pandemic the same as everybody else, I think. Uh, it has been tough. I'm finding the lack of human contact very difficult. I, I love being among people. Um, so I'm, I'm finding that very difficult, but um, everybody's in the same boat. So we just need to knuckle down, bear with it, and we are coming to the other side of it. The, the rollout of the vaccine has been remarkable, um, and we, we can see that the numbers are are being managed. So um, so yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to the day where I can actually go and see my children and give them a great big hug because I'm missing them desperately. How, how old are your children, Jim? Uh, I have two daughters, one's 25 and the other one's 27. Tell us a bit about your background. Uh, I mean, where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Tell us about Jim Fairley. Oh, right, okay. Um, I was born in Letham in Perth. Uh, I was actually born in Perth Royal Infirmary. And I was brought up in a housing estate in Perth, uh, a council housing estate in Perth called Letham. Um, we went, I went to a primary school just five minutes up the road called Our Ladies Primary School and I then went to Perth Academy for a couple of years but my dad was teaching at a, the Perth High School 
and I was not focusing on my schoolwork. So he hooked me from the academy and took me up to the high school so he could keep an eye on me. It didn't make me any better as an academic, but it settled in my behaviour a wee bit. So um, the long arm of my father was keeping me right even at that age. Um, so I left the school when I was uh, 18. Um, I wasn't particularly academic, never have been. Um, but I always had an absolute fascination for animals. And um, from as young as I can remember, I've always had a dog. I kept racing pigeons as a boy. Um, I was the kind of guy that would go out and, you know, find animals with broken wings or birds with broken wings and animals that weren't right, bring them home, nurse them back to life and all that sort of stuff. So animals were my fascination. So when I left the school or when I was leaving the school, I wrote to um, vets, zoos, uh, farmers, gamekeepers, anyone that had anything to do with animals that I could see there might be a, a, a place for me. And I got uh, a response from a guy who was a sheep and cattle dealer stroke farmer, and he gave me a job. And he gave me the job on the basis that my great uncle, my father's uncle, had actually worked for his father the generation before. I had no experience of working with livestock at all. I used to go down to the market in Perth. There used to be a couple of markets in Perth back then. And I'd go down on a Monday during the school holidays and chase the sheep up the pens. Um, but other than that, I had literally no livestock experience whatsoever, other than my racing pigeons. So he gave me a job, and um, I was with him for about two and a half years. Um, and it was basically all traded stock. So he'd go to the markets, he'd buy them, he'd bring them home, he'd doze them, give all their medicines, put them out to grazings, bring them back. So it was big numbers moving, just moving livestock all the time. Um, but he went bankrupt, which was nothing to do with me. It wasn't my fault. And that was all his dealings. <laughs> and I got paid off from him. I landed up working uh, with an industrial cleaning company for just over two years. I went from there to Australia. I traveled in Australia for a year. I worked on cattle stations, sheep stations. I was a brickies laborer. I did all sorts of stuff. But that, that year of travel was just the best life experience I could ever have had. It was phenomenal. Then when I came back, I, came, I went back into to sheep farming, shepherding, and then I took on the, the sort of head shepherd's role in a local estate, which I did for 13 years. I then um, managed to raise enough money to take on a, a contract farm agreement on a big estate. So I ended up farming a 5,500 acre hill farm. I ran 2,000, just over 2,000 yows. We had 75 cows. We fattened everything ourselves. Um, it was a big, big enterprise. It was a big, a big place to run. Uh, I set up, my wife and I set up uh, an outside catering business. I'd started the farmer's market while I was shepherding. I started the first farmer's market in Scotland when I was shepherding in two, uh, 1999. And we, we I ran that for quite a number of years. Um, when I then took on a farm of my own, we continued going to the farmer's market, but we kind of diversified out of that as a result of the farmer's market. Some, some weekends the market wouldn't work because it was pouring rain or, you know, Whatever, you'd have stuff left over. So my wife had the ingenious idea of turning that meat that was left over, freezing it, turning it into burgers, and then taking it and selling it as a cooked product at festivals and events. And that turned out to be a really successful wee business. And um, so we ended up doing that for about 10, 12 years. Uh, we were doing big festivals like Tea in the Park, the Transmit Festival in Glasgow, Royal Highland Show, Perth Show, um, we were all over the country 
and it became the focal point of how we actually earned a living. And in 2016, the Brexit vote happened. Um, I looked at we looked at how the farm was was going at that point. Um, there was various other personal reasons, but it became clear that under a Tory government out of the EU, that farming would be one of the things that could seriously struggle. So we took the decision that in 2017 we'd come out of the hill farm. We gave up that farm altogether. I continued to rent ground for a while um, uh, and kept enough beef, cattle and sheep to provide the catering business. Uh, but last year, the 2000 and, oh, kind of, uh, 2019, coming up at the end of 2019, 2020, I couldn't get the politics or this desire for independence out of my system. So I'd had the conversation with my wife saying, right, okay, what, what am I going to do? <laughs> And we knew that the, the nomination process was coming up. So I kind of had it in my head. I would try and find a seat that I could that I could go to. And then out of the blue, Rosanna Cunningham decided that she was stepping down. So obviously it was my home constituency. I've lived here my entire life. So I put myself forward to stand as the candidate. And um, I got the nomination. So we took the decision then, or just prior to that, to sell all the breeding stock. Because if I got the nomination, I'd have to give my 100% focus to that. So we sold all of our breeding stock. And as soon as I won the nomination, we sold all the fat stock. Um, we've still got enough in store for the chance that I just might not get elected. But we've still, so that's still there that I can fall back on if I have to. But my aim is to make sure that we win this seat and that um, that I will have changed my career completely. So it's it's been a, a hell of a journey. Let's put it that way. Well, it's it's interesting because I think maybe that's what people find interesting about people who stand for political office. They, they like to think they've had some experience and they like to think that that experience has been at least partially acquired outside I, in travelling and being in different countries because it's only through that sort of process uh, you can really get, a, seems to me, a really good handle and put what happens here into some sort of context, into some sort of frame that people can, can respond to. So here you are, you're now, you, you've left that industry behind you a little bit, or to a large degree, but you've kept some a foothold at least in it. Yeah. Here you are on the doorsteps in this constituency of South Persia and Kinross, like Oko. What is the correct terminology? Is it Kinross or is it? It's, it's Oko. Persia, South and Kinross. And Kinrosshire, of course. Yes, just right. south and Kinrosshire. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I, I should know that. Um, <laughs> so, what, what's the reaction that you're, you're getting, Jim, on the doorsteps? Well, we're not chatting doors, and that's I have to say, I I got involved in, in this after the twenty four ref the the two thousand fourteen referendum, and. I never envisaged, I never had any ambition to be a politician. I never had any ambition to be in politics. I didn't want to be involved in politics. I had a very political upbringing and I didn't want to be involved in it. But I've always been political without actually realising it. Setting up the farmer's market was politics. Uh, getting involved in public procurement um, with the with local authorities was politics. Um, and then when the referendum came along, I didn't see that as being political. I saw that as being something that the country would do. But it was all politics. And so I've been brought up in this very political household. And one of the things that I've always enjoyed about the kind of things that I'm doing, whether it was farmers markets or public procurement or dealing with the schools or all that sort of stuff, is dealing with people. 
I love dealing with people. I like to know people's stories. I like to know their history. Um, I, I, I want to know what's bothering them. And it's like, well, how do we find a solution to that? So that that's kind of just who I am naturally. That's the kind of person I am. So that's the bit that I'm really, really missing about this campaign is that we can't go and chat people's doors and ask them if they're going to vote for us. And I, when I was doing this, uh, when I was doing door knocking for either John Swinney or Pete Wisher or Rosanna, it would be, I loved it when you when you were getting somebody who wasn't quite there. They were, you know, I'm not sure about the SNP, what about this, what about that? I loved having those conversations. And then if you could walk away and you know that you've touched them, you've got to them, you've, you've managed to, to give them a, a, a different view, um, or even the ones who are really against us, if they've come away from that conversation without being angry at us, without seeing us as being the nasty nationalists, as they like to call us, those kind of conversations I absolutely loved because they were engaging people. They, they wanted to challenge you, and I, I really enjoyed that. So I'm missing that. I'm really missing that about this campaign. Um, but now that we're actually able out and out on the streets and get the leaflets through the doors, what I am getting is, I don't know if I told you this, I've got a livestock trailer from my farming days. It's a 14 foot by four foot trailer. You've seen them out in the streets, big livestock trailer with the grates along the side. And I've got a, a four wheel drive truck because I live out in the countryside. Um, you'll need it, for, we need that for the weather, you'll get with snow and all the rest of it. So I've got Jim Fairley decals on my truck and I've made eight foot by four foot um, uh, Corex plastic banners with Jim Fairley SNP written all over them. So there's one on either side of the trailer and there's one stuck on the back of the trailer. So anybody that's in Persia South and Kinrosher just now, they're going to see my trailer driving about all over the place with these great big Jim Fairley signs. And we're getting toots of the horn. We're getting folk putting their fingers up. We're getting, you know, people waving to us. When we put leaflets through the door, I'm getting people coming out saying, oh, you've got my vote, Jim, you've got my vote. Um, we're getting a good response. I've had very, very little negative response. And even the ones who are saying that they're not going to vote for us, they're saying, you seem like a decent enough guy, but I can't vote for you because I disagree with a particular policy. And I quite like having those conversations as well. So, well, what is it? What policy? Because as you said, I alluded to right at the start of the conversation, we haven't had a single policy from any of the other parties. We've just had, let's not have another indie ref. So we've got policies. We've got lots of good policies. And, and, and I'm trying to tease that out of people when I get the chance to speak to them. But by and large, we're getting, um, we're getting very good response. I, I got, um, as I said to you, I, was, I brought up in Letham in Perth. And you'll know Stuart Cosgrove, who's the... Um, He's the writer and broadcaster, works for the BBC. He does off the ball. He's been on the show. Yeah, great, great guy, Stuart. He's been on the show. Yeah. yeah. Well, Stuart, um, he was brought up in Letham, the same housing estate I was brought up in. So I approached him and said, how would you like to do a wee kind of wander down memory lane about Letham and our place where we grew up and all the rest of it? And he says, yeah, that'll be great. We'll, we'll do that. Now, obviously, he couldn't come up from Glasgow because of the COVID restrictions. So what we agreed to do was um, I got uh, some really good video footage of Letham, the Garth Avenue shops, Louis Pagliari's chippy that used to be there. And we talked about Letham, what it was like when, when we were boys, or Stuart's a bit older than I am, but so when we were younger, all those landmarks were still there. What it was like now and how we'd like to see it 
going forward in an independent country. So we did a seven minute video, which I was really worried about because by and large, people will look at a video for maybe 15, 20 seconds. If it's a good one, they might go into a minute, minute and a half at a push. But we did a seven minute video with Stuart doing a talk over, excuse me, or a voiceover of us reminiscing about Letham. And the, <laughs> the response has been phenomenal. Um, we actually put some paid advertising into it to, you know, to make sure that we could get that message out to Letham. We, we didn't need to bother. The, the natural um, organic growth of that video has been phenomenal because people want to hear about people who come from their place where they live uh, and who understands what it is to have been brought up in that place and to have kind, some kind of vision or understanding of where it is that we need to be. And I think that's what's resonating on the doors, particularly in the city. You know, if you take Letham, Tullock, Hillyland, um, Craigie, um, Oak Bank, Viewlands, they know that that's where I come from. So there's, a, there's a, an appreciation of the fact that it's a local person who's actually standing up for the, the, the local community. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with how it's going at the moment. Let's put it that way. I'm certainly not complacent. Don't, don't take that as being complacent or anything but. I'm out every day, out on the doors, delivering the leaflets and talking to as many people as we can. But I'm delighted with the way that people are responding to me. Well, there is a saying in the, they use in the States and politics. They say, all politics is local in the end. It, it, it's the mano a mano, face-to-face -face stuff that yeah. sticks. Yeah. And there's no substitute for that, really. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of questions coming in, Jim. Uh, let me just uh, ask you a couple or three of them. Uh, Jim McIntyre, his question is, as a voter in your constituency, can you tell me what your personal views are on the timing of the next referendum? I think the timing is as soon as we can come out of the, uh, the worst effects of this pandemic. Um, I, I don't think there is any point in us trying to, to do anything while we are still fighting this pandemic, but I genuinely can see us being maybe not out of it, but having control of it within the first couple of years of the referendum of the of the election, because we're only three weeks, three and a half weeks away from the election. We're getting we're doing a remarkable job with it with the uh, with the vaccine rollout. The numbers are going down on a daily basis. And as long as we behave, because ultimately it's down to us, we have to make sure that we control this virus ourselves. The vaccine is only one part of the of the armory that we have. The rest of it is down to us and how we behave. Um, if we can get control of it, then as soon as is practically possible, once we've got control of the virus, then yes, I think that will be when we are going to go. The First Minister has already said, um, as soon as we get control of the virus, then then that's when we should be holding a referendum. The second part of Jim's question is, uh, why nearly five years after Brexit does the SNP appear to be so unprepared for that referendum? I don't know that we are unprepared for that for the referendum. Um, I don't I don't know in what context it means that we're not prepared for it. Um, I think that uh, the best preparation we can have is for a referendum, as far as I can see, is having demonstrated strong leadership and governance and making sure that people, when they can go to the ballot box, whether it's for this election for the constituency or whether it's for a referendum and decide they're independent. Do I trust the people who are bringing forward this bill? Or do I trust the people who are telling us that we can do this? And I don't think we can say anything other 
than Nicola Sturgeon's performance right throughout this pandemic has been exemplary. She has stood up there day after day after day. She has taken all the pounding and everything that's come her way, and she has managed it, I think, magnificently. So as long as we have that level of trust, you only have to look at our, our figures, the, the, the way people are responding to her. Um, she's got phenomenal figures. And people clearly trust her judgment. They trust her leadership. And we're not unprepared for a referendum when we have a leader who has got that level of trust gained in the populace in Scotland. Okay. Um, thanks for that. There's a question here on uh, farming. All right. uh, Craig sure. the Pict is asking, what's, what's the worst for Scottish farmers? You've got, you've got a choice of three here. Right. Is it uh, squeezed margins from supermarkets and free trade, or is it degradation of standards through trade deals, or is it Boris Johnson? I think Boris Johnson exemplifies all three of them. <laughs> um, I remember during the, the, the referendum campaign, I, I specifically said at the time, the worst possible outcome for Scottish farming is that we vote no, stay in the UK, and then come out of the EU, because we will then be at the utter mercy of the UK government. And all of the other things that, you know, you're talking about supermarket control and all the rest of it, all of that is tied in to the kind of government and how a government looks at your industry. If you look at the, the, the Scottish government's position on the food and drink sector, in 2007, when, this, when the SNP first took power, Richard Lockhead was made the agricultural minister and minister for food and drink, and uh, amongst other things. But the first thing that he did was he established a national um, policy. The, the, it was the first policy in Western Europe, specifically dealing with the food and drink um, uh, industry. When you look at how the, the SNP are, are, are governing farming with, a, with a, the, the ability that they've got, with, a, with a, the rules that they're allowed to work to, they've managed it in such a way as to make sure that the farming industry understands that they're valued, they're respected, they're part of our society, regardless of what people's views are that a lot of farmers vote Tory. Yes, of course there are farmers vote Tory, but there's also doctors who vote Tory. There are postmen who vote Tory. There are postmen who vote Labour. There are nurses that will vote for Labour. That, that, that's just the, the sort of internal politics. The farming community themselves have by and large been well looked after by the Scottish government within the confines of the ability that the Scottish government has, has got. Um, so all of the things that, I missed the lad's name, unfortunately. All of the things that he said are bad for Scottish farming. The only thing that's going to protect Scottish farming from here on in is an independent government in Scotland who values farming as part of the, the, the what, farming underpins the fastest growing sector in our economy, which is the food and drink industry. And if we don't protect it, then that entire solid piece of business is in danger of being eroded. So all of it is a major threat. Well, that, that, take, that takes us, that, thank you, Jim. That takes us neatly on to the next question, which is from Fiona Morag Graham. And she's saying, uh, if you're elected, Jim, uh, uh, in, in terms of supporting farming in Scotland, how will you support farming in Scotland to adapt to climate change emergency 
but continue to produce the high quality food that it does? Well, the Scottish government are already all over this. Um, Fergus Ewing has already established uh, five bodies. There's the, there's the beef sector, there's the, the hill, hill farming sector, there's the arable sector. Um, there are two others. I can't remember what all five of them are at the moment. But these bodies are industry leaders and they've all been tasked with the, with the same um, problem. Climate change is an issue and we need to deal with it. Farming has got some real issues in what we do as an industry and in producing um, greenhouse gases that we have to control. But we've also got the ability to find the solutions. And rather than demonizing the industry, which is what has happened in the past, the, we've seen loads of, of uh, television uh, programs talking about you know, how farming is, we can't eat red meat because it's bad for the environment. Certain parts of the world, there is absolutely no doubt how they produce their red meat is bad for the environment, and, and I don't dispute that. In Scotland, we've got a much better system. The, the grass system, the grass-fed system that we have, we don't use excessive amounts of water because Scotland has plenty of water as it is. But the, going back to the question, the, the, the Scottish government are already saying to the, to the industry, okay, here's the problem. We need to reduce your greenhouse gases by 25%. How do we do it? And how do we do it and still allow you to continue farming to produce the world-class food that you do so that we enhance our reputation? Think it's a marketing person's absolute piece of gold nugget that you've got our climate, you've got our resources, you've got our, our reputation for the, the quality of food that we produce, and we've got an industry that the entire world is looking at and thinking their food and drink industry is immense. So how do we make it even better? We've got COP26 coming to Glasgow. So we've, we're targeting ourselves to be um, net emission free by 2045 and farming is already working on how we're going to do that. Now, all those work streams are, are currently ongoing, so it'll not be until the next parliament, clearly, when they come back and report. But that's not going to be one of these reports where government tells an industry, you will cut your greenhouse gas emissions by doing this. And they say, well, we can't do that because you haven't thought of this, this and this. This is the government saying to the industry, how do we do this together? And I think that is by far the best approach, not just for farming, whether it's for farming, whether it's for salmon farming, it doesn't matter what it is. Talk to the industry, speak to them and find the solutions. Accept that there's a problem. And once you know that there's a problem there, how are you going to find the solutions and work on it together? And that's what the Scottish government have already started doing. And they will definitely continue after we get back into Parliament in May. Not making any assumptions, definitely get back into Parliament in May. Well, you know, anybody watching the opinion polls will will will, uh, will take that on board. Um, a small extension, if I may, to that question, which has been asked by Michael Curry, and his particular point is: uh, Will you, i.e., the next Scottish government, let's assume you've been elected on May six, uh, will you have a twenty-five year plan for the protection of the environment? That's. I can't say what the Scottish government have up their sleeve. Because bear in mind, I'm a first-time parliamentarian. I've never been in the parliament. I've never worked with the Scottish government on, on developing these things. Um, what I do know is from my experience of working with both Richard Lockhead and Fergus Ewing, they're very, very much focused on making sure that we continue to farm, but we continue to farm environmentally. Now, Rosanna Cunningham has done a lot of immense work in making sure that we're protecting the environment. And those two things have to lock together. 
the fact that Fergus has pulled these five work streams together to tell the farming industry, we want to work with you, how are we going to do this? They've got the, the tree planting ambition. And there are things about the tree planting that I think we need to look at again. There are there are, there are areas of trees or areas that are being planted that I don't necessarily agree we should be planting. And that's maybe something I think that we should have another look at. But by and large, the encouragement is we want you to continue growing world-class food. We want you to be part of the solution. We want that to be a marketing potential for us to be able to sell that product, have people come here and say, yeah, this is one of the cleanest climates producing the best food in the world by some of the most environmentally sensitive farmers that we could come across. And I, I can't see how anyone could possibly argue with that. Let's, that's been very helpful, Jim. Let's move back to the constituency again, because your constituency, if I can use that term, uh, your constituency has been uh, uh, has been defined as the Tories' number one target seat. Is that correct? It is, yeah. It's the most marginal seat in the in the country. Right. So, it, bearing in mind our audience might not know a great deal about South Persia and Russia, uh, like you and I, um, I, if you were to describe the constituency, and maybe if you could describe it in uh, in very lay terms, in the sense of if the constituency was a person, how would you describe that person to somebody who'd never met them before? <laughs> um, I would say it's a conjoined twin, but the conjoined twins are not identical in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> it, is, it, is a, it's, it's a, it won't be a unique constituency, but it's definitely a, a very contrasting constituency. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, we've got... Uh, we go up as far as, uh, we go as far as Scotland well uh, in the east. We come right through Kinross, Bridge of Ern. Uh, we come up to uh, Ochtenarder, Blackford, Muthal, Creef. We go on beyond Creef to just, just this side of um, Loch Ern. And then when you come back in, you come back through Medvin, Bank. Now, all of those towns are wee rural towns slightly smaller, some, some, some bigger, some smaller, but they're all kind of rural towns. And then you come into the top of the Glasgow Road and you drive down into Perth and you've got um, that part of it, I suppose you would call, you've got the Western Edge, which is the new development of houses right down the western side of Perth. You go into areas of North Newton, you come into Letham, Tullach, and that's real city centre. You've got some areas of, of deprivation, you've got some areas of kind of middle ground you've got some areas of very affluent uh, housing so we have got a complete mixed bag right across the constituency um you've got despite you've got despite the fact that you've got some um some rural towns you've got some really areas of deprivation in those rural towns as well so it, it's a complete mixed bag with very differing views on on how the world should work um and it's it's quite a it's quite a unique challenge being able to to bridge those two areas. Um, but it's a very interesting constituency, that's for sure. So uh, you, you give us a geography lesson there, which is which is interesting, it's great. But you talked about conjoined twins to yeah. begin with. Describe each of these twins to help us understand what you're dealing with here, what your challenge is, and why the Tories have labelled it their number one target. Well, they'll have it as the number one target because the, the margin was so tight last time round. There was only 1,400 votes in it the last time. And it's one of the, 
if I'm, um, you know, I, I look at the polls and I look at, uh, you know, I hear people talking, all the rest of it. If I keep coming back to that fact, there was only 1,400 votes in it the last time. So complacency will be our biggest issue. If we get to, to May the 6th and, you know, there are large areas um, in, in Letham or in Tullach um, where they just say, ah, it'll be all right, they'll, you know, we'll, they'll win, they'll win. They're telling us they'll win. That's the thing that I'm more scared of than anything else, is that people think that it's in the bag, because it's definitely not in the bag. The, um, the city itself is like any other city, and it is now a city, by the way. Perth is now a city. John Swinney's constituency takes one third of it in the north side, and I've got two thirds of it in the south. Uh, but what I don't have is any sort of the, the real landmarks. The, the Perth city itself, John has the, the, the city centre, so all the sort of real landmarks are in there, and I've kind of got a big chunk of the housing. So there's, it's, Letham's a big housing estate, Tullock is a big housing estate, and you add Hillerland into that. Chunks of North Newton, those are big housing estates. Old, um, old council houses that were then bought, and then there's still some bits council, still some bits that are in, in private ownership. And then when you go up into Craigie and Viewlands, the, the vast majority of that is all privately owned. Um, so the, they're kind of a mixed bag as well. Um, I, I don't want to use the, the phrase working class areas, but that's kind of what I'm alluding to uh, down in Letham and Tullock and places like that. Um, and the Tories have got a bit of traction in, in areas like, I don't, when we were working on Pete Wishart's uh, campaign in 2019, areas that were traditionally very Tory, like um, Viewlands and Oakbank and bits like that, we were getting phenomenal responses on the doors and that was borne out by Pete's result. I mean, he, he had gone from winning the seat by 22 votes to about 7,500 votes. So there was a big swing at that time. But what Pete didn't have as much of at that point was South Persia's rural constituency. And there's quite a, a, a traditional small C conservative vote in that South Persia constituency. Um, and and I, I think there's a there's a, there's a, a challenge for me there insofar as um, I'm still supporting the SNP and there is a belief in the countryside at the moment that the SNP are not taking the rural voice seriously, which is completely untrue because the SNP membership have just elected a farmer to represent the constituency that has a big farming community in it. So um, we've got a... a, a and when we talk about the rural constituency, it's not just farmers. Rural towns are not farmers, but they still have a rural, they still have all the rural issues. So it's it's like the 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 city is very much like any other city in the country. It's got its it's got its good bits and it's got its 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 poorer bits. Um, but the 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 rural part of it is definitely more traditional, small C conservative, and some of it would be what you would call Tory. Um, where you're never going to you're never going to get any traction in those bits, but there are enough bits where people are now looking at, at the the Boris Johnson government and saying, "I've always voted Tory in the past, but I can't continue to do so." And this guy, he comes from here, he knows what it's like to live in the rural constituency. I might just give him my vote this time. So the membership, I think, have have weighed this up because I was up against Stephen Gethins as a phenomenal parliamentarian, and I was up against Stephen Gethins to win this seat. Um, or to win the nomination. So the, the, the very switched on SNP membership have weighed that up and went, who's going to be the best one to take this seat at this time? 
And that's, I think, why I got the nomination, because I've lived and worked in the in the, the heart of Lethem. I grew up there. It was where my boyhood was. So I know what it's like to live and grow up there. But my working life has been in the rural constituency, running my own business, um, setting up the farmer's market, working with the Scottish government on public procurement. And the membership have looked at that and went, yeah, that makes more sense for here and now that this guy gets the gets the seat or gets the nomination, I should say. Well, I think that's very interesting. Let, let me uh, pick up on one particular point you made. You said that uh, you have a concern about some areas actually uh, uh, avoiding complacency and coming out and actually registering their vote. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, there's, 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 there's two uh, particular features around that. One is <clears throat> they don't have to come out and register a vote if they use the postal vote, obviously. Yeah. yeah. But also getting out the vote to a large degree depends, I suppose, and particularly under these conditions where you can't talk to people in advance on the doorsteps, it, more than ever, I suspect it will mean the actual physical <laughs> getting going to people's doorsteps on polling day and making sure, based on your canvas results, if you have those, that they actually move away from the television for 15 minutes and go down and vote for you. Yes. So do you have enough... Uh, feet on the on the on the street, as it were. You, is your membership sufficient to be able to carry out that task? Do you feel? I'll be honest with you. When when we first uh, when the campaign team got together, um, we we put our first leaflet out via Royal Mail um, because the the COVID restrictions were what they were at the time. Um, but we we made the decision, and it it was a long protracted debate. I can assure you. We made the decision to ask activists to do the, the second leaflet because we wanted to be seen to be out there. The, the most phenomenal part about the SNP is that we've got boots on the ground. It's the, it's the activism. It's the people who are prepared to give up their time, give up their energy, give up their fuel to go to a place, get on their boots and go and deliver leaflets and chat doors. The, the, the SNP are phenomenal at that. The membership are amazing. So in terms of the second leaflet, we had this discussion, are we going to ask them to go out and do this? Um, is, is this the right way to go? But as it turned out, there were, there were, we came upon one or two problems where getting the Royal Mail one out. Um, so we made the decision, right, we're going to ask the, the activists to do it. And normally, I'm, I'm sitting in the office at the moment, normally the table would be covered in leaflet runs and all the rest of it. And from the time we said, right, the leaflets are ready to pick up, bang, they went out the door. People have been desperate to get out and actually get out and do something over this campaign. So I've got no fears at all that when we go back to them again, and we're going to send out supporters letters for various things, but when we go back to them and say, we need to get out the vote, they'll be there. Um, but if anyone's watching in Persia, South and Kenrosha and you want to help, please get in touch with the campaign team. You'll be more than welcome. Um, there will definitely be jobs for you to do. But we, we, I, I'm blown away by the amount of time and effort that people put into coming out and getting around the doors, getting these leaflets out. Um, the, the team have been absolutely fantastic. And that's just been brutally honest about it. They've been amazing. So I, I'm convinced that we'll be able to do it. But more importantly, John, and this is the good bit, I love the old-fashioned campaign. When my dad was in the SNP many years ago, it was done with uh, PA speakers in the tops of cars 
You'll remember those days when you went around the housing estates and you were speaking through the PA speaker. Well, we're doing that. We're planning to get that started. The, the, this leaflet run is just about finished. So the next stop for me is getting the PA speaker on. I'm going to get round the housing estates. I'm going to get round the constituency. I'm going to go round to the villages and the towns. And I'm going to speak to people through the PA system. And getting closer to the, the campaign, on the day, we'll make sure we've got PA systems right across the constituency. Just reminding people, if we can't get to your door to chat you up, then we're going to tell you through the PA system, today's polling day, please go out and use your vote because there is far too much at stake not to use your vote. Um, complacency will be the biggest killer for us. We have to get the vote out and make sure that they, they get out and turn out. Because, in honesty, I don't just want to win the seat. I want to absolutely annihilate the unionist vote so that there is no discrepancy. There is no discussion about it. The people of Scotland have spoken. They have destroyed the unionist vote. Now is the time for the referendum. So it's so important that we get as many people out and cast their vote as we possibly can. But you're right about the, the postal vote as well. The, the uptake in postal votes um, applications has been phenomenal. So I'm, I'm happy that we've got that many people. Because the, the fear is, of course, you say, no, I'm going to, I'm determined. It's my first ever election. I'm determined that I'm going to go and put my cross in my box in my polling station. But I might get a phone call the day before and say, you've come in contact with somebody who has uh, tested positive and you must now self-isolate for 10 days and you can't go out the door. So I've made sure that I've got my postal ballot uh, opportunity there and I'll take it with me on the day and hand it over if that's what I'm going to get to do. But um, I, that, that's why the postal ballot uh, application was so important, making sure that people actually had the ability to vote. Now, I think that's very interesting. I think we've posted on screen how people can get in touch with you. But just in case uh, somebody's uh, listening to this rather than watching it, uh, do you have a telephone number that somebody can call if they want to help uh, you and the, support the, you? The best thing to do is... Or can they go online somewhere? Yeah, go, go on to either my Facebook page or my Twitter page or the, the website, and it's all www.jimfairley.scot.com. Uh, www.jimfairley.scot and that'll take you into the website which will give you all the contact details to be able to, to get involved with the campaign. Just make sure we get this right now. www.jimfairley.scot I take it you're still open to help. I take it you're still more than happy to take support from people who want to uh, come out there and leaflet for you yeah. and, and do whatever needs to be done. What Now, this takes us to uh, an important point here. Your, your opposition don't have the boots on the ground. They just don't. No. Uh, just simply, that's an analysis based simply on well, two things, personal experience in this area, uh, coupled with the fact that uh, the, uh, the age profile of your main opposition, the Tories, is very old in relative terms compared to the SNP membership which is much more age spread, it's even more evenly spread, and probably the greatest support around about 70% uh, or so is, is in the younger age group. Uh, so your opposition is going to have to rely disproportionately on social media, uh, because A, you can buy that, you, you don't have to have activists, you can do this with one man a dog <laughs> in a back room somewhere. I mean, do you have any? Do you have 
a, a social media strategy to deal with that. Oh yeah, yeah. Right at the start of the campaign, um, we very quickly identified that social media was going to be vital. Um, so I have my Twitter account, which is red hot at the moment. Um, I'm out every day that I'm out. I'm posting whatever it is that I am out on the campaign. Uh, I'm always with at least one other other activist. Uh, we get that out on Twitter. We get it out on Facebook. We've got an Instagram account. Um, they're there. <laughs> The, the campaign team were wanting me to get a TikTok account and, you know, have me doing dances and stuff. I'm, <laughs> that's, uh, you haven't seen my dancing, so that's probably not going to encourage anybody to vote for me. Um, so, yes, we've got a very good social media campaign. There's, there's guys in the campaign team are constantly monitoring uh, where I am, what I'm doing, and letting people know that that's what's going on. Uh, I've also, we've, we've uh, got some professional videos made. The, the one that we've done with Stuart Cosgrove, uh, we've got another one coming out that's uh, focusing on food and drink and the farming community. So that's kind of more geared towards the, the rural constituency uh, and probably some of the, our opponents' traditional votes. Uh, that will definitely feed into what, what they're doing. But I think the, the, the most important thing that you talked about there, John, is it doesn't matter what demographic we're speaking to. We're speaking to them with policies. We're speaking to them about what we are planning to do. We're speaking to them about the, the record in government that we've had, holding our hands up to the things that we haven't got right, but the determination to make sure we do better in the future. What our opposition have got is vote for us on the list and stop India F2, nothing else. I mean, you, you, you talked about it right at the start. How are you possibly going to entice anybody to get up off their chair from watching Coronation Street or whatever it is that they're watching to go and vote for you when your entire message is stop you from allowing to use your democratic voice and vote against a party who are bringing forward, you know, policy after policy after policy to better the lives of the people of this country. It, it just beggars belief that they have done so little to actually come at us and say, these are the things that we can do in Scotland, and this is the support that we'll get. We've got the full weight of the UK behind us, and these are the things that we're going to deliver. What they're delivering is fear. You know, what, what are they scared of? Is it, is it baby boxes that they're scared of? Are they free of, are afraid of free education? Are they afraid of, of free prescription? What is it that they're scared of? It's utterly about them preserving the union and nothing else. So their demographic is getting smaller and smaller because saving the union for some people in the past, in the last referendum, was about they wanted to protect what they had. They wanted to protect what they saw was being under threat. And yet we keep delivering things that are beneficial to their children, to their grandchildren, to them, to society as a whole. We get things wrong. Of course we do. We're only human. But when we get it wrong, we say, right, how do we get it right? How do we change that? How do we take that mistake and turn it into a positive? Because that's what you should do. Whether you are running a business, running your household, or running your country, you'll get things wrong. Everybody does. But it's saying, okay, I got that wrong. How do we change it? How do we make it better? And the only thing that they are saying is, we can stop the SNP from giving you the chance to make the choice about where your constitutional future lies. It's a nuts, it's a nuts kind of campaign that yeah. they're running. And I just don't understand it. Well, I, I can offer you some thoughts on uh, my understanding of, of what it's about. Uh, 
first of all, it seems to me that there's been a decision to, uh, well, the result of this, frankly, will be, let me deal with the result of it, the, the, the motivation. I think the result of this will, will be to finally break the Conservative and Unionist Party, because it, it, there's always been a, an unhappy uh, marriage there, because a lot of people who are Conservative are not necessarily Unionists. And a lot of people who are unionists are not necessarily conservative. Mm -hmm. But in the past, because that's the way the brand was constructed, they found it uh, not inconvenient to all work under that heading. I think what this strategy does is to drive a coach and horses through that, that conjoining, because it forces people to choose one over the other. Yeah. Because if you, if you don't have policies that are conservative, but you simply... Uh, speak to the unionist part of your party, then okay, that does preserve your core, but it's a shrinking core. And you only do that if you're absolutely desperate. In other words, you're terrified that you're going to lose yeah. hugely. Yeah. You would rather lose more modestly. Than <laughs> so this is, not, this is not a strategy that could be described as a winning strategy. Yeah. It, it looks as if it's entirely uh, based on Let's keep that little bit that we've got. Because okay, that was a strategy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but what it, the, 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 the risk to the SNP, of course, well, it's not to the SNP, but the risk uh, more broadly is that there will, there will eventually be a Scottish Conservative Party uh, which believes in independence because history tells us, and I've said this before on the show, and, I, I, we, and Stephen Gethins and I discussed this when he was on, is that there is, historically, it's very unusual. The SNP is very unusual in, in historical terms because it's a, such a broad church. Mm. It's very rare for secessionist or independence movements to be a broad church. There's usually about four or five independence parties that people choose from depending if they're right, left, or whatever mm -hmm. the situation may be between so this strategy actually will accelerate that, I suspect, yeah. because it will, it will alienate people who are conservatives but not unionists, because yeah. they want to see right-wing policies. They want to vote for those right-wing policies, and they're not there. But the, the point that you've made is absolutely spot on. If you look at the leaders' debate last week, Douglas Ross's position, where he said, I won't talk to Nicola Sturgeon about climate change, the single most important factor that we are facing as a race, I won't talk to you about climate change because you believe in Scottish independence. And where his thinking was and, and thinking that that was going to do his party any good is beyond me. Um, and <laughs> the other thing he just said, I was sent uh, a copy of their latest leaflet. They're not even sending leaflets out to ask you to vote for the constituency vote. They're plying their trade to get the list vote in order to have just enough to stop the SNP from getting a majority. And mm. the, my election uh, campaign organiser sent me a copy of the, the, the latest leaflet. I hadn't seen it at that point. And the desperate one-trick ponies was my response. It, it's desperate, and that's the only thing they've got. And it's, it's gonna, it has to blow up in their face. And I, I think you're right, this election could well see the, the absolute destruction of them completely. As long as people want like to vote. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it will make, it, 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 it will cause people 
to have that. They, they'll have to review their positions now. I think it's a foolish way to adopt. I, I mean, I understand why. Because if you think, as I said, at the risk of repeating myself, I think if you feel you're going to lose big, bigly, you want to try and lose wheelie if you can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I should add, uh, to reassure you, uh, so you don't go uh, searching for your uh, website address, we've posted it on the screen. And it's for the sake of those listening, as opposed to watching, it's www.jimfairley.scot. So if you want to help Jim and his colleagues keep this constituency, that's the place to go. I'm sure they'll be happy to hear from you. Uh, if you have that spare capacity, and after all, this is a lockdown, so a lot of people who would be working eight, nine to five every day might have a little bit of spare time. They can go out and help Jim. If you do have that spare time, make sure he's aware of it if you're in this, this area. Uh, I, and people, by the way, are saying that they're hugely supportive of you. Um, I have to ask you about Alaba. Uh, what, what, what's, your, what's your feeling about uh, this new party headed up by Alex Salmon? Um, they are an opposition party, quite simply. Um, they're, they're set up in opposition to the SNP. Um, if I go back to the, the point that was made uh, earlier on in the week, or it might have been the tail end of last week, had everyone who had voted for the SNP in the constituency elections in 2016 also all voted for the SNP and the list, we would have had the majority last time round and we wouldn't be asking Boris Johnson or fighting with Boris Johnson to get a, a, an independence referendum this time, we could have done it the last time. Um, okay. There is also the, the danger, and I, and I see this as a genuine danger, that if the SNP do anything other than look at Alapa as being an opposition party, we will be accused of trying to rig a system. The Electoral Commission will look at us as though we are trying to rig a system. So as far as I'm concerned, the both votes SNP would have worked in 2016 had we had the, the same number of people who voted for the constituency voted in the list. We would have had enough then for a majority, and I believe that we'll get enough this time for a majority. And as far as I'm concerned, right now, I'm still advocating the, the idea of both votes SNP. Okay. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, we'll have somebody from Alaba on, and hopefully the other parties too, in, in future shows, and uh, we'll, we'll talk some more about that. Uh, we've had a whole bunch of people writing in saying, uh, good luck, Jim. Right, thank you. <laughs> you've, you've obviously tapped into your fan club here. <laughs> <laughs> I told them all it was, John. <laughs> It's, uh, and other people told me before you came on, sparing your blushes, that Jim is an awfully nice guy. If I heard that <laughs> once, I heard it until my head was spinning. Uh, oh, that's, that's nice to know. <laughs> so you, you, you've, not, you've, you've got a real live fan club out there. And, and uh, we can only hope that the electorate has plugged into that same niceness as mm -hmm. that you've shown tonight and in the past. Uh, just very quickly, Jim McIntyre is saying, He's looking at the polls for the by-election at Hartlepool, which is coming up real soon. And it's 49% for the Tories in a very traditional Labour area. Wow. Uh, and he's saying, we need to get away soon. <laughs> uh, listen, the, I, I've got to say, John, I'm standing. 
after we lost the referendum in 2014, I was literally heartbroken. And, and I mean genuinely heartbroken, as, as I'm quite sure everybody else was. And we could have, my wife and I could have quite comfortably gone on with our business because the, the business is a lovely wee business. I love working with my wife. Um, we have a lot of fun doing it. I really enjoy what I'm doing. But there was a lad I was speaking to very recently and he said his father was a minister and his, he was asked to then go and train ministers, young ministers coming into the, into the ministry. And he said the very first lesson that he gave them was when you walk in the door and they're all sitting down with their first lesson, he says, now, if you can get up now and walk out of here and not have to be here, then do it. But if you have to be here, then stay where you are. And that's what this is for me. Anybody who thinks that I'm doing this for a career um, or because I, I want to, to be, be a politician, they're wrong. I am burning to get independence. And that's why I'm doing this. Um, so nobody wants it quicker than I do, I can assure you. And that's why I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing. I just can't get it out of my system. Good. Thanks for that, Jim. Uh, I did say that I'll go quickly. It has. We've only got one minute left. Very uh, thank you. I'm deeply grateful to you. Thank you very much. Uh, a few concluding remarks, uh, everyone, if I may. First of all, a big thank you to Jim and a big thank you to all of you out there who joined us tonight across the world, we gather. And thank you particularly to those who submitted questions. Uh, we have a formidable list of guests coming up. I say this every week, but it's true every week. Go to the What's On guide. You'll see the strap at the bottom of the screen. That will list all of the guests that we have coming up uh, in, in the, the weeks ahead. Uh, next week, at the same time, join us for guest. Our guest that this week, that week is going to be Chris Hanlon. Now, Chris is the policy development convener for the SNP. So it's really not to be missed. Join us next Wednesday and get your questions in advance if you prefer. Uh, for Chris, because he knows more about policy development in the SNP, mm. I suspect, than most. Oh, yes, and a reminder, please look out for Dr. Elliot Boomer's Constitution column in the Sunday National this weekend. Go head straight for the seven-day supplement. Nobody knows more about constitutions than Elliot Boomer. And I can say that with some authority because he's written three books on it. No one in Scotland has written three books on the Constitution. Uh, and very importantly, please support Indie Live and Indie Live Radio. Some great shows coming up. You'll see all that in the What's On Guide. Uh, and thanks again. Uh, and join us next Wednesday. And remember, it's been a great day for British democracy. And just before I go, we have a very special surprise guest coming up on April 21. I can't tell you anymore. Uh, but you don't want to miss that show. Big thank you to Jim. A big thank you to all of you. Good night. Take care and stay safe. Night all. <laughs>